Hello, everyone, and welcome to LJN Radio. I'm your host, Courtney Omernick, and you're listening to I Want to Be A. And in each episode, we complete that sentence with a different job, bringing in professionals from a variety of fields and industries to give you the information you need to hopefully land a job and thrive in them. Today, we're changing up the title of this show a little bit to I Want to Be in a Band. And to help me figure out what it takes to succeed in a band, we have Mario Cerruti, a drummer from the band Polar Code based out of Chicago, Illinois. So welcome, Mario, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Perfect. So first off, could you just tell us maybe a little bit about yourself and when your interest for music started? Sure. Um, I currently live in Chicago. I've been here for about eight years, but I grew up in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. I can remember being interested in music like my whole life, okay. but there, there are probably a few specific instances I can remember when I was in elementary school where I, I officially got hooked. Um, it's mostly because of my parents. Uh, they had like this live VHS tape mm-hmm. of the Moody Blues playing at like Red Rocks, and mm-hmm. I, I watched that all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't, I just got hooked on it for some reason, and I watched it, and I, like, memorized all the words. Um, I was also really into musicals when I was in elementary school, and I um, I listened to, like, Joseph and Amazing Tentacolor Dreamcoat mm-hmm. every day and memorized all the words. So it started really young. I didn't know that I'd be playing the drums. I didn't know what it was going to be, but even when I was, you know, in third, fourth, fifth grade, I was like obsessing over music. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was when I was in Fond du Lac. And then eventually I made it out here to Chicago for mm-hmm. music school. And now I'm a drummer in the city. So speaking of making it out to Chicago for music school, can you talk a bit about the educational background that you have? So I started the drums when I was about 11. I started with private lessons and I was in band in like fifth and sixth grade. Um, I kept playing in band in, all through middle school and high school. And I did play drum set, but I started focusing more on orchestral music, like mm-hmm. playing in a symphony orchestra. And that's what I eventually went to DePaul for. Mm-hmm. So I was I was there playing, you know, orchestral music. And my goal was to make it into a symphony orchestra. So yeah, as far as educational background, it was, you know, playing ever since I was 10. And then eventually going to DePaul for a degree in music. Perfect. So because a lot of people are self-taught, do you think it's kind of a standard? Is it required of becoming a musician to have that sort of like a college education background? Or is it helpful more or less to have kind of that background behind you? That is a really good question because it's something that I feel like comes up all the time Mm -hmm. with me and my friends that are in bands and stuff. Uh, The reason being that, like, of course it helps you. It definitely helps you. And there are some schools like uh, there's Columbia College here in Mm -hmm. in Chicago, also like Berkeley in Boston, that they even offer programs that like cater specifically to contemporary popular music. So you can basically just go to Columbia College in Chicago to learn how to be in a band and Mm -hmm. be in a successful band. So, of course, that's helpful. But then when you look at some of the most successful bands that are around today, a lot of those guys didn't go to school for music at all. Some of them didn't even graduate high school. Um, so it's like, yes, it's helpful, but no, it's not required by any means whatsoever. It's like, would I recommend it? Sure, mm-hmm. but you don't have to. If, if you're <laughs> one of those people that are, are really motivated and can learn all that on your own, then sure, save mm-hmm. the money and don't. But um, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely helpful. 
So do you think that there are any other like extracurricular activities that could help maybe if someone is or isn't in college? Like I know you mentioned you were in band and started band in fifth or sixth grade and kind of continue on. Is there anything else like battle of the bands or anything like that could, that could help someone? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say when you're in school, like elementary, middle school, high school, you know, if, if you don't feel like going to college for music, just being in, involved in as many of the things like band or the arts in general, uh, plays, musicals, um, even like just public speaking, mm-hmm. anything that puts you in front of a group of people and forces you to like develop a skill and perform that in front of people is helpful. So yeah, like when I was in high school, I was in jazz band, orchestra, symphonic band, marching band. When I was in middle school, I did musicals and plays and singing and acting and stuff like that. And it it all comes back to help because Mm -hmm. in the end, you're, you're trying to do something where you're performing a very challenging skill in front of people and it's all helpful. So I would just say do as much as you can. That's (laughs) that puts you in front of a group of people and kind of forces you to like get over those nerves and perform. Yeah. Public speaking, all that. I wouldn't even have thought of that. But um, what about the, what about other instruments? Like, is it, do you play any other instruments? Is it helpful to know how to play multiple instruments, that sort of thing? Yeah. I play a bunch of different percussion instruments, but I personally, I want to learn how to play guitar and bass guitar because yes, it's, it's totally helpful. And uh, a couple of the other guys in my band are, are really good, you know, multi-instrumentalists. And it's extremely helpful when you're in a rehearsal or you're writing and you have, you know, sounds in your head. It, it helps so much to be able to look at the person next to you who's playing a totally different mm-hmm. instrument and explain it to them in terms that they can understand rather than just like trying to sing it and they have no idea what you're trying to you know, mm-hmm. do. And you're like, can you play that? Yeah, I don't even know. So if, yeah, like being a multi-instrumentalist is really important. And a lot of people these days are like, there are a lot of bands with the drummer, like even the, the drummer for Coldplay, he's like a great guitar player, a great mm-hmm. piano player, he's a songwriter and it only helps. And being learning other instruments it actually helps you out on your own instrument because it, it shows you a different perspective and every instrument has its own challenges. So definitely now, like I said, I wish I could play other instruments and I, I want to learn, but yeah, it's, it's totally helpful. Perfect. So as I mentioned in our introduction, you're in the band Polar Code. So um, can you talk a little bit about how Polar Code was formed? So like I said before, I went to DePaul mm-hmm. for music. And when I was there um, in my sophomore year, I met Eric Stang, who um, we just happened to be paired up in the same jazz combo. And at the time he was playing bass in there, even though, so like I said, he's a multi-instrumentalist because his main instrument is his piano. And at DePaul, it's very much, you're either there for, you know, jazz music or classical music. And Eric and I kind of immediately bonded over the fact that we, we felt a little bit like outsiders because we like rock music and pop music. And he just kind of asked me outside of practice one day, like, do you like stuff that isn't jazz or classical music? Or do you ever want to like play in a band? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so uh, we got together and immediately he had already like written a bunch of songs and he wanted to perform them live. And uh, we did that for a while, bringing in different musicians. Eric was the lead singer for a long time. Eventually he didn't want to do that. 
and we found um, Jeff, our bass player, through a friend of a friend, and then also Rob, our singer, through a friend of a friend. And but they, they weren't guys that we had like hung out with our whole lives or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like we didn't meet them until you know when we were in, in our mid twenties, and mm-hmm. we wanted to sort of take it seriously. So yeah, that's how we formed. Could you um, then walk us through a typical rehearsal session with your band? Like when you practice, how often or how long you practice for? Yeah, um, we practice once a week as a band, uh, probably for like three to four hours. There's a big difference between when we are rehearsing because we have a gig coming up and then if we're practicing just to write or create something, like those rehearsals are totally different. So like if we had a gig coming up, um, it's very regimented. It's like, let's play this song a million times until it's absolutely perfect. You know, let's mm-hmm. talk about things like dynamics and note lengths and stuff like that, very business-like. And then if we're just going in to create something, then those are totally different every time. You know, you, you never know mm-hmm. what will spark a song or something like that. But yeah, that's as a group once a week. And then outside of that, we just try and get together as much as possible to work on whatever. I mean, we might just sit down and just talk about our website and social media one day, you know, outside of practice. So yeah, I'd say just once a week as a group and then as many times as possible outside of that, just whether it's just one or two of us or the whole band. Okay. Well, you talked about rehearsing with just the practice versus writing versus doing a gig. And I know that you guys have done multiple gigs in Chicago. So how do you go from that stereotypical garage band to booking a show? Yeah, that is, it's, it's very different for a lot of people. Uh, for us, a lot of it had to do with who we knew. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that's pretty consistent across the board because when you do first start, you don't have a huge following. You can't, you can't go up to a venue and say, hey, I know that I can bring this many people. You don't know. You, all you know is that you, you think you're good enough. So you, you just have to build it up and you have to develop a fan, fan base. So if that means your first gig is playing in someone's living room for five people, that's fine. Just as long as the next time you play, it's four or six people. And the number keeps going up because... Eventually, when it gets to the point that you want to play at a real venue, they, they'll, they'll ask you, well, how many people can you bring? And you have to be able to give them an honest answer. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're in trouble. So, <laughs> but we just happened to know um, we were fairly connected in Chicago, like musically, because, you know, we had already gone to school out here for music. So we knew someone who knew a booking agent who was nice enough to let us play at a good venue for our first show ever. So we kind of skipped a couple steps there. But in the end, it's, it's, it's a slow build. You just have to play anywhere you can and then build up a number where you can honestly go up to a venue and tell them how many people you think you can bring. And it, it goes from there. But getting a booking agent, things like that, it takes time. A lot of times, maybe the person just happens to be at a show and they like you and they want to work with you. Or maybe you just know someone offhand. You have a friend that knows someone and you just contact them and let them know who you are and what you're about. And maybe that could start it too. How do these types of gigs work? Like you kind of talked about coming to that process and who you know and that sort of thing. But when you're at the gig and you're playing the show, how does that typically work? Or how does that run? Like when do you arrive, set up, that type of thing? Usually if there's multiple bands playing, it's been set up ahead of time, what time everyone's going to play. Typically, 
you know, the last band to play is called the headliner. They're usually the best or can draw the most people. Their name gets put on the marquee outside and they get to get there first, nice and early. They set up everything. And then all the other bands, that's called like the back line. They have their drum set set up and their amps and the other bands will often share that just to make life easier for the last band to play. So their stuff is already set up. Um, but yeah, usually all that, uh, the timing of everything is set up ahead of time. And so you, you get in there probably a couple of hours before the venue starts letting people in and each band sets up, they do a little sound check and the show is off and running. But yeah. Like I said, it's, it's pretty typical for bands to share the headliners gear and stuff like that to keep things moving along. But yeah, it, it differs a lot for depending on the venue you're at. There's very few things that are consistent in the music business. So, uh, but yeah, in my experience, that's that's kind of how it goes down. So now moving a little bit to the pricing of these gigs, is there usually a set or like agreed upon price that bands should ask for when they book a gig? Or does the person you're playing for usually come up with what they're going to pay you? It takes a long time before you can sort of start throwing your weight around and actually ask for a specific amount. Even Polar Code, there's been very few gigs where they asked us how much we wanted, you know? <laughs> it kind of threw us off the first time, and we were like, oh, yeah. they, they want to know how much we want? Uh, how much do we want? We didn't talk about this, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a long time before you get to that point. So most of the time, someone else is telling you, and it's for the most part, based on ticket sales. So it's very simple. It's just they'll probably keep track. That when someone walks in, they'll say, which band are you here to see? They'll mark it down, and you'll get paid however much, you know, depending on how many people came to see you. The venue will typically take maybe around 20% of the money that was made. And also, sometimes that goes, that even goes for merchandise. So if you're selling T-shirts, CDs, things like that, Sometimes the venue will also take, um, you know, 10 to 20% of those sales as well. And yeah, that's, that's usually set up by the venue or uh, if, you know, the booking agent, if there was a booking agent involved, they will take a small percentage of, of that too. But it's, it's just based on ticket sales and things like that really change the bigger you get. And then obviously, you know, when, you, when you're, you know, Muse or Coldplay or, you know, some huge band like that, yeah, you're just telling them, you know, you need to pay us this much and then mm-hmm. we'll play for you. So <laughs> so what about individuals who don't really know your band? And you talked about that earlier with in terms of booking gigs and kind of the buildup. But say you're opening for a bigger act and how do you get the crowd motivated and ready to listen to you when you guys are up there on stage? Yeah, that is one of the hardest things uh, because a lot of times it's not your choice. You know, the, the it just the bill kind of happened to be put together that way. So you just have to kind of hope that the band you're opening for is somewhat similar to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you aren't anything like the band that you're opening for musically, it's, you're going to have a hard time on stage. There's just no, there's no way to get around it. So it, because of that, there's no shame in sort of like catering what you're going to play towards the crowd that you are going to play for. So, you know, some of the questions like we've kind of asked ourselves sometimes is like, oh, this band is a little heavier in general. So let's play all of our hardest, heaviest songs we have. Just, you know, cater towards them a little bit. Or on the opposite end, oh, they're a lighter, softer band. So let's 
playing our lighter, softer songs. And, you know, you just kind of have to accept the fact that for the most part, no one is there to see you. So don't bother like trying to talk the whole time, you know, keep, keep the talking <laughs> down to a minimum, just kind of like get through the music, keep everything as energetic and action packed as possible. And just um, hope that they like it, you know, and try and try and cater, mm-hmm. cater a little bit towards, that crowd if you can. So speaking of these people who might not know much about your band, what have you found to be the best ways of promoting your music outside of like doing these concerts or gigs? Facebook and Twitter are obviously the biggest ones. There are so many social media sites. There's like a new one that pops up every day. (laughs) It's impossible to keep up with all of them. So what we found is just pick a couple or just one that you are going to be really good at and that's what you're going to use all the time and that's how you're going to build your little you're creating a little community you know you want to okay so you know take twitter for instance you know you want to reach out to people and make it personal you can get creative with it create little hashtags that you know get people involved with your music um and you want to keep it interesting you want people to know oh if i follow blah, blah, blah on Twitter. I know that I'll go there. They'll be saying something interesting. They'll be posting a cool picture. And that that, that has nothing to do with the music. You know, they literally, it's just like, oh, it's fun to follow them on Twitter because they're cool guys. So yeah, I I would say it's, it's very helpful to just sort of pick one or two social media sites rather than saying like, hey, we're on 5 million social media sites, but we all, we use all of them like haphazardly. And we don't, you know, like, because there's so many, we don't keep up with all of them. That doesn't really get you anywhere, but if people can really get into one of them and they know that it's like this cool place to go and you're sort of delivering some behind the scenes things and um, you're making it personal, then you're really off to a good start and you can kind of build a little community that way. Great. So after you have that community and you've booked a lot of gigs, um, in your opinion, how do you know when your band has become a success? Like, do you define success as being mentioned on TV or the radio station or playing at a large gig? How would you define that? That is a very personal question. So obviously you're asking me, so I'll tell you <laughs> how I feel about that. But it's, I mean, that is so different for so many people. So mm-hmm. for me, it was very simple. I always said, ever since I knew that I, I just wanted to be a professional musician, that mm-hmm. really, if I can just do it, for a living. If I can say I'm, I'm making money doing this and nothing else, that was success. That, 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 that was it. Um, it wasn't, oh, I need to be, you know, playing Madison Square Garden in New mm-hmm. York. That's when I'm successful. Or some, for some people, it is that. For some people, it's like, this isn't a success until like, you know, we're the biggest band on the planet, you know? But for me, it was very simple. It was just like, oh, hey, I can do this for a living. That is success. So mm-hmm. it was very simple for me. That was about it. But it's it's totally different for, for every person. So one of the final questions that I kind of want to touch on that might be switching gears a little bit here. I recently read that one of your lead singer left Polar Code to pursue other opportunities. And I know that it's not really uncommon for individuals to branch out of bands that they're in for solo opportunities like Beyonce or Justin Timberlake. So do you really ever worry about your band breaking up? Um, I don't. Uh, the reason I don't is that, so yeah, even though we recent, we recently 
parted ways with our singer. Um, I don't worry about us breaking up because just the communication aspect is really important of being in a band and being in a good band. And what's good about my band, which currently there's just three of us, is that we're very honest with each other and we, you know, are constantly talking about things, about everything. And we always make sure we're on the same page. So we've known since day one that this is what we want to do. This is our priority in life. And as long as everyone is being honest with each other at all times and you know you're in a group where everyone's on the same page, then no, there's no worries, you know. Of course, you can't predict the future and you never know uh, what will come up or if someone sees another opportunity and wants to go their own way. But yeah, as of now, no, I, I don't worry about it. I don't think about it because just because we, we keep talking all the time, we're always letting each other know exactly how we feel and we're all on the same page, which is really important. Perfect. So what do you absolutely love about being in a band? What are maybe some things that you dislike or extremely challenging? Being in a band like is amazing because it just I love the creative process of it. I love when you're writing and, and you're, you're starting out with, with absolutely nothing, with silence. And you start with that silence. You build up a song from nothing. And I just like... I like that process. It's so rewarding. No matter how good or bad the song is that you just wrote, it's so rewarding to start with silence and eventually build that up to a full song. Um, it's sort of this like magical, like mystical thing that, I mean, it, it never goes the same way. There's no science to it. You never know what'll trigger that creativity. And then also just being able to take that and then perform it in front of people and sort of when, when things are going really well and, and there's a, a lot of people there and everyone's really into what you're doing, you, you sort of get this elated feeling on stage like, wow, this is everything's going well. And the feeling you get when you're playing that thing you created in front of people and they're enjoying it is amazing. And it's, it's unparalleled. There's nothing else like it. So those are definitely my favorite things. And then um, mm -hmm. the things that are challenging about it, uh, stuff that sucks. I mean, it's like, it's really hard to know when you're creating that thing, if, if it's good or not. Mm -hmm. you, you just, you don't know, no matter how long you've been doing it, you're always going to sort of question yourself and it gets hard and it's, you know, you really have to step outside of yourself and, or try to, and look at it from an outsider's perspective and judge yourself really harshly and be like, is this any good? I don't know. And that just, that gets hard to deal with, you know, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how big or small you are or how successful your band has been, you, you know, you're always going to ask yourself that question. And that's just a tough thing to deal with is to, to accept the fact that maybe you will make something that sucks <laughs> and you won't know until you put it out there and everyone tells you and you go, whoops, well, you know, moving on. But <laughs> that's probably the hardest part. <laughs> so Mara, do you have any last pieces of advice for our listeners who might want to pursue this path? I'd say the biggest thing is you hear so many times, like, it's so hard to make it in the music business. Mm -hmm. And that's true. I mean, it's, it's hard to be successful in anything. But for me, it's like, if you are thinking about it, and you feel deep down inside that, that you need it, you, you, you need to be in a band, you need to be playing music, because that's all you've ever wanted. And, you know, it's an absolute priority in your life, then, then yes, mm -hmm. then do it. Then that's great. If you don't need it, if, if, 
if you're on the fence or you, you think, well, that's fun, you know, I'd want to try that. I, I would say don't bother. I would say mm-hmm. you can do it as a hobby and that's fine. But but don't waste your time because the reality is there there are so many people, so many very talented people that dedicate their lives to it and need it. And if you are just kind of, it's a hobby and you think you're good enough, but you're not exactly sure, the chances are very slim that it's going to work out. So I would just say, you know, really ask yourself, how badly do I need this? How badly do I want this? And if your answer is a definite yes, I, I do, I need it, then go for it. And if you're not sure and maybe you'd rather do something else or do it as a hobby, then keep it a hobby. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of I Want to Be A. Many thanks to Mario Cerruti from Polar Code. I would like to take this final moment to encourage our listeners to continue listening to localjobnetwork.com radio. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, please email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Once again, this has been Courtney Omernick for localjobnetwork.com radio, and thank you for tuning into today's program.